Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. I don't think this text is too difficult to understand. If, if you stick to the contextual clues that are embedded in the discussion uh, with Jesus and his disciples. I mean, the idea here is let's keep the, the plain things uh, the main things. What Jesus is doing here with the immediate disciples is predicting that their entire world is about to fall apart. And I think this is a relevant message for us today because a lot of our people, and maybe even some of you, watch the news or read your newspapers or online, and, and you think, well, yeah, our world is unraveling as well. And so the exhortations that come out of this passage still hold true for us. And I think that when Jesus speaks of things to come, whether it's immediately or eschatologically, the idea is he speaks of those things to come so that you and I can be prepared to live well in the present. Now, the main point I want to drive home today is based on what I would say is a linguistic parallel for what Jesus says here in Mark 13, namely in John chapter 15 through 16. You'll know that as the high priestly prayer. It's this. In this world you will have trouble. But be courageous, brothers and sisters, because Jesus is making the world new. So if you have your Bibles, open them on, turn them up, find Mark chapter 13. And what I want to do today is is, is fairly simple, actually. It's what you might call a theological exposition or perhaps a biblical theology of Mark 13. And uh, you'll have to have your Bibles open to follow along with me because I will read some passages and I will just simply reference others, okay? And you can put this together later, but I want you to follow along with me. And let's begin here in the text in Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. As he, being Jesus, was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what, what impressive buildings. Jesus says to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All of them will be thrown down. And while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, across from the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you are standing there when this unnamed disciple calls attention to the magnificent temple. I think it's hard for us to understand what's happening here. There's this old rabbinic proverb that says, He who has not seen the temple has never seen a beautiful building in his life. I mean, the temple itself was regarded widely among the ancients as one of the greatest achievements of human architecture. The the complex itself stretched over one-sixth of the city of Jerusalem. The the, the massive stones that some of them decorated, embellished with gold, they were were huge. It, It made the building seemingly indestructible. But it's not the architectural magnificence that's most important. It's, it's, it's architectural structure and strength, I believe, pales in comparison 
to its spiritual significance for them. N.T. Wright, I think, in his book, um, The People, The New Testament People of God, he made a statement that helped me understand that. He, he said it's, it's difficult to, to, to overestimate the importance of the physical temple in the time of Jesus because for us, there's no one building that has um, so much importance. It is it's so integral to our lives. I mean, if you were to ask any ancient Israelite, uh, what's the most important place in the entire world, they would all give you the same answer. Well, it's the temple in Jerusalem. This is the center of their political life. It's the center of their economy. It's the center of their religious life because in the eyes of the people, the temple constituted the divine, divine dwelling place of God in Israel. This is literally the linchpin that holds heaven and earth together. I, mean, I want you to think about that for a second because the temple is where God dwells with man in their minds and it's the place where men make sacrifices so they can dwell with God. So when you look at verse 2, and Jesus says the complex is going to be destroyed, no stone will be left upon another. It's no surprise that these words would have stirred immediate concern and even curiosity among his Disciples. So notice their question. Their question to Jesus that sparks the, the dialogue that follows, which we call the Olivet Discourse, is, is very simple. Their, their question focuses on the fate of the temple. And I would propose to you that that is what you need to keep in mind when you interpret this passage. That is the driving question that Jesus is responding to. When will the physical temple be destroyed? What will be the signs leading up to that? In other words, let us know, Jesus, that that's the primary question. Let us know when that physical temple is going to be destroyed. Now, I just want to walk through very briefly how he responds, because I think it's fascinating. What are the signs that the, the, the temple is going to be destroyed? What, what are the signs that we need to look for, Jesus? Well, he begins to say, in general, here's what you need to watch out for. There will be false messiahs and false prophets. There's going to be political disturbances. There's going to be natural disasters. And then he embeds an exhortation there, and he says, listen, but don't be alarmed. This is not the end. So after he, he, he gives them the, the general things to look out for, then he says, here's some things you need to be prepared for personally. You will be persecuted by your own people. You will be questioned by your own government. You will be rejected by your own family. And then the exhortations. But you'll be my witnesses to the nations. In fact, the Spirit will speak through you when you witness. And then, if, if you endure, if you endure to the end, you will be saved. When will the temple be destroyed? Then he gives the final sign, answering their first question. Jesus says there will be a Daniel-like sacrilege that desolates the physical temple in Jerusalem. And listen, when the temple is destroyed, that is the sign to escape this tribulation as quickly as you can. Now, I've read this passage so many times. And as I was preparing for this morning, I had a thought. If I was one of the disciples and I was sitting there I, you know, I want to try to fill the, the sense of, of, of distress and even confusion over what Jesus just, just did, right? I mean, Jesus, 
what in the world do you mean, do not be alarmed, this is not the end? You just said the temple was going to be destroyed. The temple is our entire world, right? If it's destroyed, that is the end. I mean, how can God dwell with us, Jesus? If there's no place for sacrifice, how can, how can Israel dwell with God? And even more puzzling is the fact that you have this band of, of believers, of disciples, right, who are following an itinerant rabbi whose ministry is not so much connected to the temple, and yet Jesus says, when the temple is destroyed, you're going to be persecuted by your own people. Before the temple's destroyed, you're, you're going to be questioned by your own government. You're, you're going to be rejected by your own family. What in the world does the physical temple, remember, that's their question, what does that have to do with, with these things? What's going on? Now remember, the disciples are concerned about the physical temple. But if you were to go back and carefully read Mark 13, 1 through 13, you're going to find, I believe, that Jesus is not so much concerned about the temple being destroyed as he is about their faith being destroyed. And having the entirety of the canon that we have as believers, we know why Jesus is concerned about their perseverance in the faith. Do we not? I mean, let's just do a quick theology of Mark. If you were to begin in chapter 1, the question that we see here in 13 from Peter, James, John, and Andrew, if you read Mark 1, you'll notice those are the first four disciples Jesus calls at the dawn of his ministry. So I don't think it's a coincidence that here at this point, this transition place, these are the first disciples that Jesus called, and these are the first disciples that Jesus tells about the dawn of a new era. And what they didn't know at this point and what they would experience later is that Jesus' words would literally play out in their lives, really in the book of Acts and in the epistles and letters. I mean, think about in the book of Acts. You already have false political messiahs and religious prophets. They were common. I mean, read Acts 4 and 5 and go read the epistles. When John says many false messiahs have come and many more will come, They've already been rejected by their own people or family. They're standing before kings in Acts chapter 23 and 24. I mean, if you read Mark chapter 13, verse 9, and really think about what's happening there, you have a one-verse summary of the entirety of the book of Acts. Do you not? And though Acts ends in A.D. 60s, the historian Josephus tells us that during the War of Jerusalem, beginning in A.D. 66, we see something really fascinating. The zealots move into the occupied temple during their revolt against Rome, and they roam through the Holy of Holies. And during the war, you see what happens not long after that is when Rome invaded in AD 70, the Roman general Titus enters into the holy place of the temple, desecrates it, and has it destroyed. Now, what you may not know is during that invasion, it's estimated that over one million Israelites were slaughtered, and there has never been a tribulation like that in Jerusalem since. But what's interesting is that Josephus also says that when Jerusalem fell and the Israelites were slaughtered, by and large, the Christians were not among them because they had fled to the mountains just north of the city. In other words, I think they did just what Jesus encouraged them to do right here in Mark 13. 
Now, I say all that, that's all fascinating, right? It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is able to prepare them for these things. But I would argue the most important thing that we need to understand as believers is actually what happens in between Jesus' words in the A.D. 30s and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Here's why. By the time the physical temple is destroyed, remember, that's their main question in this text. But by the time the physical temple is destroyed in A.D. 70, I don't think the disciples would have been so much concerned about their original question. Do you? No. In, in, in other words, by the time the physical temple is destroyed, it's already obsolete. You see, what Peter, James, John, and Andrew would come to realize is that back in Mark 13, when they were asking and, and questioning about the temple behind them, they actually had the true temple sitting in front of them. What then do we do with the temple? Mark's gospel is deceptively simple, I think. In other words, it's concise, but it's deeply theological. And I think he has a very subtle way of making it clear that the physical temple would no longer be essential in the end. I want you to look over in Mark chapter 11. We're just going to do a brief biblical theology of Mark, and then I'm going to try to pull it into a conclusion and some applications. But if you begin in Mark chapter 11... You'll notice that when Jesus triumphantly enters into Jerusalem, Jerusalem in general is not his ultimate destination. What is? The temple. Right? So when Jesus gets to the temple, what does he do? He overturns tables and, and he, he judges its leaders for, for desecrating what is supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. Now when Jesus leaves the temple... Where does he head? When he leaves the temple in Jerusalem, he heads to the Mount of Olives. Now, if you're an Old Testament scholar, you're going to say, hey, wait a minute, that, that pattern of moving back and forth from Jerusalem to the, the Mount of Olives, especially the temple, that, that, that's familiar, right? I mean, Ezekiel chapter 8 through 11, right? This, this is, what Jesus is doing, I believe, is recapitulating what happens in these passages. Because in these passages, in Ezekiel, the prophet sees the desecration of the temple, and, and because of that, he sees the glory of the Lord leave the temple, right, and come to rest on the Mount of Olives. And for those people in that time, God departing from the temple in Jerusalem was a sign of judgment. God is no longer dwelling there. And now you get to Mark 11 through 13, and God has returned to the temple once more. The presence of God incarnate enters the temple again, and he finds it only worthy of judgment. Then the presence of God incarnate leaves the temple for the last time to rest on the Mount of Olives, which again in the Bible is a place of judgment. What then of the temple? Well, you keep moving into Mark chapter 14, and this is when Jesus is... is, is uh, being questioned by the Sanhedrin, and they're, they're trying to build their, their case to crucify him. And you see one of them say this, We heard him say, I will demolish this sanctuary made by human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by human hands. Well, obviously we, un we understand that they didn't understand what he was talking about. Perhaps they misheard him, but Jesus was not referring to a physical temple, was he? 
I mean, John 2.19 fills in the, the, the information for us. He says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. He's not referring to the physical temple. He has something else in mind. Jesus is saying, listen, I am what the temple is supposed to be. Indeed, I am replacing the temple itself. He's telling us, I am where God dwells with man. I am the sacrifice that permits man to dwell with God. And if Jesus' words are not enough, in the supreme act of temple destruction, the crucifixion of the Son of God, in Mark 15, we're told that as Jesus took his last breath, the veil of the Holy of Holies, which separated God and man, was torn from top to bottom. And that's Mark's very subtle way of telling us that God is declaring that the old temple, the old temple which falls under God's judgment for not being a house of prayer for the nations, that temple is done. But the true temple that's falling under judgment against sin on the cross is doing so so that every tribe, tongue, and nation can enter into the presence of God through the blood. And I love it in, in Mark. I'm stealing the next few sermons, Thunder, but the, the very first person to, to utter the words, truly this is the Son of God, is a Gentile. If this is not enough, what does God do to verify this transition? Well, the true temple that was seemingly destroyed on the cross rose again from the day, the grave, three days later. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you, that temple still stands. You see, by the time the physical temple is destroyed in A.D. 70, it, it was nothing more than an outward expression of the judgment that had already taken place on the cross. And by that time, Peter, James, and John would have firmly believed, as we see in the book of Acts and the epistles, that God was already at work in constructing a new temple with Christ as the cornerstone. And this new temple would become what the Edenic temple garden was intended to be. This new temple would become what the, this permanent dwelling place of God, something that the tabernacle and the temple in Jerusalem could only temporarily embody. So when you get to Acts and the Spirit of God descends and indwells believers at Pentecost so they can become uh, what you might call the building bricks or as Hebrews calls the living stones. God is at work to build this eternal temple. And that construction that began at Pentecost outwardly expands to the ends of the earth as the Christians are witnesses to who Christ is. Now, this multi-layered approach to looking at this text through the lens of biblical theology is important because I'm going to argue that in verses 1 through 23, Jesus is primarily answering the question about the physical temple and, and, and the implications on the disciples in that moment, but he has something else in mind. But he does say, listen, guys, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. So the tribulations predicted in 1 through 23, those are just the beginnings of the birth pains. That's what Jesus says. But then you get to verse 24. And what I think Jesus is doing here 
as he is looking for beyond this new era, post-temple era, into the dawn of a new age. And what he does is collapses all of the, the end times, the, the last days, into a few verses. After that tribulation, which I believe he's speaking of what those immediate disciples would experience, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shed its light, the stars will be falling from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. <laughs> I mean, this is amazing. This is beautiful. It's after the destruction of the temple and the undoing of their world that all of creation starts to come unraveled. And here's why this is important. I think all of this starts at the cross, right? So if you go read these verses, at the cross, the cosmos goes dark and the earthquake, what it does is it shakes and it sets the stage for what's going to happen on a cosmic level. This should not surprise us because in Psalm 78, 69, it tells us that the temple functioned as a microcosm of the universe. So you have to read this text on two levels. If the temple symbolizes the cosmos, then what happens to the physical temple, which Jesus predicts, what happens in A.D. 70, is you could say is a type of a larger pattern that we will see on a larger scale in all of creation. The stars are going to fall just like the temple stones. Christ will tear the veil of the heavens and venture out into the earth. And as Zechariah 14 tells us, when he does, he will land right back on the Mount of Olives where he was before to judge the living and the dead. And with him will come angels to gather the saints from the nations, gathered not to a physical temple, but to Christ, the true temple. With Christ as the cornerstone, brothers and sisters. The New Testament tells us that we are the building stones, if you will, the living stones to complete this work as the gospel goes forth. And as this work continues, it will continue until Christ returns to rejoin heaven and earth and his temple will cover all of creation, and you and I will reign as kingdom priests. Let me tell you something. That's a lot of theology. But if that doesn't give you a grand vision of the sovereignty and the power of God, if that doesn't bolster your faith in the midst of a world that is unraveling, I don't know what will. What now? How do we live? Like, what do we do in response to this? I would say if the destruction of the temple is a pattern of what will happen on a cosmic level, then, then why not use Jesus' exhortations back in the passage to instruct us today? Right? After all, in verse 37, Jesus says, What I say to you, immediate disciples, I say to everyone. That's all of us, right? So, brothers and sisters, here's the thing. Unlike the predictions, and the, which are very precise, that Jesus gave his immediate disciples, Jesus does not tell us when he will return. That is not something the Father reveals to him as the incarnate Son. 
If you have questions about that, that, um, that the, the Christology, I'd encourage you to email me. My email address is keithwhitfield at sebts.edu. I'd love to talk to you about that. But what Jesus does tell us is that we are to be awake, to be alert, to watch and to guard ourselves. And so as by way of application, I want to just give you two simple things. Number one is be aware of your posture and then mind your perseverance. So your posture should be do not be alarmed. (laughs) How many of your church people are losing their minds right now? I mean, what the disciples experience here are nothing but the birth pains of what's going to come. And we should not expect anything different. I mean, look around you. There are political disturbances. There are natural disasters. There is rejection. There will be persecution until Christ returns. That is our new normal. So don't be surprised when you are hated by everyone, when you proclaim the truth. I mean, my goodness, as we get closer to the end, do you not expect the defeated one to rage all the more? I mean, I look at, go back to Acts and think about Stephen in in chapter 7, right? In the context of this temple discussion, right? I can't help but think about him who is killed. I mean, literally loses his life at the crescendo of his sermon says, God does not dwell in houses made by human hands. I mean, if if you've ever seen a full frontal attack on the physical temple, that is it. Notice his posture in that text, though. It's not of one of fear and alarm, but he has an unmovable confidence or an unshakable calmness in the sovereign hand of God. He he speaks the truth. Now, the issues that you and I face are not going to be about the physical temple. But I guarantee you there will be moments in your ministry where you will speak out against the idols of this world and they will circle the wagons on you. So do not be surprised when lost people act like lost people and pagan society responds like pagan society. I would say respond like Stephen who fixes his gaze on Jesus who is ruling over the cosmos. And brothers and sisters, if Jesus is at the helm of the cosmos, what in the world do we have to worry about? That's your posture. Next, your perseverance. Don't be deceived. Now, one of the most difficult problems facing the early church was the issue of those who betrayed the faith under the pressure of political persecution and family excommunication. But let me propose to you that that was not their biggest problem. Did you notice that in this passage, Jesus bookends his exhortations with the same warning twice? Watch out for false messiahs and prophets. It's in verse 5, and then he returns to it at the end there in verse 21 through 22. So the very structure of the discourse implies that the greatest danger for the disciples will not be persecution, though that's severe. It will not be natural disaster or uh, political disturbances. That, that, may, shatter, that may shake you. The, the biggest thing we have to worry about is false teaching and false prophets. The point is, don't fear the things that can kill the body. Keep attention to the things that can kill the souls of people around you. This is why Christ must be at the center. The word must be out in front. 
because Christ has made it possible for God to dwell with man, and it's only by Christ's sacrifice that we can dwell with God. There is no other way. In conclusion, let me say this. We know that the world is coming unraveled. All of us know that. This world is passing away, right? Everything else is going to pass away, but what's the one thing that remains? Look at verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. What's at the the root or at the foundation of both your posture and your perseverance is the inerrant, infallible word of God that you can cling to in any moments of distress. I mean, what's more reliable than the messages of this world? It's Christ's word. What's the the one way to confront the empty promises of, of false Christs and false prophets? It's the word of Christ. So I think one of the things I have learned in my life, and I'm sure you have in yours, is the central thing that distress and disturbances and disaster teach us is that Christ is all we have. And by God's grace, it's usually when we see that Christ is all we have, we come to understand that he's all we've ever needed. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us the church. This is how you do not be alarmed. This is how you protect yourself from being deceived. This is how, brothers and sisters, you persevere. You know, in Mark 13, the disciples were so concerned about what the future held, they failed to understand that the Christ sitting before them actually holds the future. And the good news is, even when the disciples were so much concerned about the physical temple, they have a loving Jesus who is more concerned about their faith. Do you not think that Christ has the same concern for you? When the world continues to unravel, just remember that the the distress, the disturbances, the destruction, that's nothing more than the birth pains of a new world being born. Be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion on the day that he returns. The cornerstone is in place The living stones are being gathered. And until the work is complete, we have to remember, we've read the end of the story. We know that in this world, we're going to have trouble. That's okay. It really is. So be courageous. Because Jesus is making the world new. Amen? You join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word that comforts us, convicts us, gives us courage. I pray that your spirit would stir within our hearts in this moment an affection for you and a trust in you 
that only strengthens in time. Father, I pray that you would bless the brothers and sisters who are before me now as they are being prepared to be sent to the nations to minister the gospel. I pray that your word would be foundational, that they would not be alarmed, they would not be deceived. In fact, that they would minister to others in a way that keeps them from being alarmed and deceived. Father, help us to remember that even when we're concerned about the wrong things and asking the wrong questions, that you know what we need. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you that you have provided all we needed. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.